read the whole of the sewer report. You've read all 258 pages? I read all 258 pages. God, you're good. I, <laughs> I read a summary of it. He's, um, the first videotape, yeah? Yeah, that's the first videotape. Sure. I'll just so get, I'll I just get out the gramophone to put it on. <laughs> <laughs> um, then the next one is videotape. Right. Then the next is videotape. <laughs> videotape. Um, kid, okay. All right. Cool. No worries. <laughs> you watch so, how difficult this is. You watch, It's all right. You're going to learn a lesson today. Right. <laughs> you wait till you see how wonderful it's going to be. Just bear with me, Dave. There is um, always there, nobody's nobody's going to call, contact you because they don't know where they're going to at the moment. Because I've told them that we've changed the Zoom. They're waiting for me to send them the information. Yeah, Uma's knocking. Dual project. Okay. How about now? Oh, magical. There you are. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. Are you good, uh, sir? Yeah, not too bad. Enjoying um yeah, kids are not here at the moment. So well, what have you done to them? Those poor I, kids. I, I've packed them away. <laughs> <laughs> I've banished them from the house. <laughs> oh my god, there's poor there's poor children. <laughs> no, they, they they spent the night at their grandma's, so yeah, just uh yeah, just enjoying the last of the Easter holiday break. Back to school tomorrow. Oh God, of course it is, isn't it? And you probably right, right yeah. Dave. What is going on? With... Sorry, Umar. I'm Des just wants to having... join your dope black dads. <laughs> <laughs> You're more than welcome, Des. Oh, he's been thank fighting you. with the membership form for some time. <laughs> ah, oh my God. What are we going to do with him, Umar? I, I don't know. You, you know, know he's like... he's still he's still the rebel of old. You know, not much Always. has changed. No, you, you know what he's like. That's come on. <laughs> Absolutely. We we we're going back to the original, yeah. So I need to give Del Delhi these nuts. Hi, Delhi. I we've, we've had to leave the last. <laughs> we've got yet another Zoom, <laughs> but it's the original Zoom. We, we've uh, had yet a problem with that one. So can I give that to you now? Yeah, if you send it to me, then I'll join you. Lovely. Okay. Talk All to right. you shortly. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right. right. Oh, God. What do I have to do? He said send it to him. Yeah, hang so on. I'll send you the text that I sent Umar. I don't know if Dell's on WhatsApp, actually. Dell is on WhatsApp. Just copy it into message. Um, Dave, I, do, I have no idea how to do this. Click and hold the message, and it's going to pop up. And you click copy, go in the message to Delhi, and click paste. Or I'll I'll do it for you, and you just forward the text message. <laughs> You're ringing me, Desmond. Am I? Yeah. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> Hello. <coughs> Actually, another video call. Look, there we are. We've got double angles. No video from Desmond. That. Why? Why are you? Why? Why is you coming out in the video? God knows why. I didn't call you, David. So go you away. You did. You so did. Look, you did. Look at your computer screen. Oh my gosh! I don't know how that happened. It says duo on my computer screen. Let's get rid of that. It just says duo. I love it. Do you want me to forward this to Delhi? Give me his number. Look, I'll give you his number. You forward it to him. Because I, I really am not making much sense of my computer at the moment. 
Just bear with me a second. <laughs> Not making much sense of my phone. Just one moment. Okay, zero seven eight. Yeah. Oh, hang on. Why is it not? Hang on a second, Dave. Yeah. Oh, hang on. Zero seven eight five zero. Yeah. Hello, Delhi. Oh, Hello, I'm trying to send you. I'm trying to send you the information, and my phone's having a little bit of a freak out. So I'm going to ask. Just read it out to me. Yeah, I'll read it out to you, Dave. Yeah. Read it out to me, please. Two six. Just the number second. is six three nine. Charlie, we're we're almost good to go. I'm going to turn my phone off. Morning, Delhi. Morning. Morning. Hello. Hello. Welcome back. Thanks again for doing this. Morning. <laughs> morning. Oh, morning, sir. <laughs> <laughs> we're all. Sorry, we're just having technical. There, there we are. More technical problems. Technical difficulties. Yeah, we always, we've always, we, we've been, we had a lot of that this morning. It's called technology, I think. It's yeah. yeah. My phone is. Welcome to Des and Dave, and uh, thank you all for taking part in today's discussion. Um, we've put together a, uh, a diverse multi-generational panel to reflect on the Sewell report, and uh, we have a, a number of uh, special guests um, for you today. Uh, we start off with uh, Delhi Adelesi a history graduate from Southampton University. We also have Uma Kankir, a black lawyer and a member of uh, Dope Black Dad. And of course, uh, we have our Charles here, who's our captive historian. And of course, uh, Dave, who would like to perhaps say briefly a little hello. Hello, was that little enough? <laughs> I think so. And. Uh, <laughs> Dave, would you like to give some context to what we're about to do? Yeah, so why this, did we this do is this? Why, why, why did we attempt to do this? This is rather challenging. Well, we we started the podcast um, focusing mainly on the US and UK politics, but lots of different issues cropped up as we were going along. And we did a Black Lives Matter special and we knew that we couldn't cover it all in one episode. And along came this report and it kind of spurred us on to look at issues more based here in the UK rather than focusing on stuff happening in the US. So, yes, this report's given us the opportunity to have some fabulous guests on to chew the fat and see what we're all thinking. Well, you're all familiar with, uh, I believe by now, Dr. Sewell's report on the, called the Commission on Race and uh, Ethnic Disparities. 
Um, and I'm going to ask our captive historian, Charles, to give uh, his reflections on the reports and uh, the controversy surrounding it. The UK falls somewhere between the claims of the Sewell report into race and inequality in the UK and the curt dismissal of its detractors. Quite probably, the UK is the easiest white majority country for people of colour to live in. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have serious problems with race and inequality. Most people of colour living in the UK probably won't have much to base a comparison on unless they have lived elsewhere in Europe or the USA. But those who have do. The situation in much of mainland Europe is arguably far worse than here. People of colour are often regarded as sexual exotica, criminals and prostitutes, and are treated openly as such. Add to that the growing strength of far-right racist parties in major EU countries, and it's clear that Britain has many advantages over its European and American neighbours, not least for their personal safety. I'm 71. I've spent about half of my life in Europe, including the UK, and the rest in various Caribbean countries. My family is mixed race, going back several generations. And earlier still, if we count all of our ethnic inheritance. And we've experienced racism here, but nothing as bad as we have experienced in countries such as Italy, Greece, France, Holland, and Spain. Dr. Sewell may have overstated his case, but it doesn't mean he is completely out of order, as his curious critics suggest. The Sewell Commission was called into being by the present Conservative government following the race audit set up by Boris Johnson's predecessor as Prime Minister, Theresa May, three years ago. His purpose being to assess where we had got to following the Black Lives Matter protests that came after the death of George Floyd. It was composed of black and brown academics and others well used to weighing up evidence and forming their own conclusions. Within black and brown communities, there exists a wide variety of views about what the most important factors leading to inequality in the UK are. As the differences in opinion among people of colour about BLM demonstrate, many people in the community and beyond feel that other factors such as poverty, geography, social class, religion, and poor educational achievement are as important as the colour of our skins. But isn't it at least likely that these factors intersect with race and impact on inequality and are worth investigating as they may lead to more equal outcomes. Despite the criticism it has received, there are some good ideas in the 24 recommendations by the Commission. A lot of work has already been done to tackle racism and its effects, as the report acknowledges, and it needs to continue and go further. Some critics, such as Bill Ribeiro Addy, the Labour MP for Streatham, claim that it gives the government carte blanche to do nothing further on race. Quite the opposite. It adds another perspective for within black and brown communities to the existing narrative, which has been led hitherto by the American rather than the black British experience. People of colour do not all think alike and never have, as the split between Dr King and the black power movements back in the 60s reminds us. 
The Commission is wrong to suggest that institutional or systemic racism no longer exists in the UK. If that were the case, there will be no need for the various race relations and equalities legislation we have seen since the first such Act of Parliament in 1965. The British government, since the days of the Macpherson report decades ago, and as far back as Lord Scarman following the Brixton riots in the early 1980s, has proceeded on the basis that in a racist society, institutional racism cannot be excluded. Yet things are a great deal better for people of colour than they were when the first generation of Black Britons were settling in and their children growing up here. Spikes of racism come and go. But it makes little sense to argue that racism is as bad or worse than it was then. Outcomes for people of colour have improved. <clears throat> Black children are doing much better in education than previously. The employment situation has usually improved. And people of colour now hold important positions in the government and opposition parties, while at the same time, there has been an explosion in the number of Black owned businesses. There is a burgeoning middle class of black, brown and mixed race people in the UK that is having a profound impact on the country itself. And yet not all is well. The Commission didn't claim that racism doesn't exist here. It very firmly said it does. It suggested, however, that Britain is less racist than most white majority countries. A difficult argument to prove that relies on the lived experience of people of colour my own experience is that the Commission is probably right on this. It is easier for people of colour to live here than, say, in France, Italy, Holland or Greece. Attitudes depend on whether the person making the argument has lived or travelled extensively in other white majority countries and has lived experience to base their opinions on. But the claim that the UK is a better place to live for people of colour doesn't amount to much when all's said and done. It's degrees of racism we're talking about here, and not an imagined Shangri-La, where racism doesn't exist and all of our communities get along with each other perfectly. Racism is alive and kicking here, as it is elsewhere. As for the positive spin on slavery the report is accused of, well, it doesn't seem to me that's what it was saying. The Caribbean islands were built on slavery, but within that system, the slaves and their descendants built a vibrant, powerful and entirely new multi-ethnic Creole culture based on survival and resistance that is worth celebrating. Many years ago, the celebrated West Indian sociologist Ken Price described the emergence of Creole culture out of slavery. It invented its own customs, languages, music, food, religions and way of life, and they form the basis of what we think of today as being West Indian. The people of the Caribbean and their descendants here have survived. They made a success of their independence and of emigrating to Britain. Their impact on British life has been immense, and the size of the mixed race community, a testament to the often surprisingly good relations between the white working class and West Indian and other immigrants because it was amongst the white working class that they first formed friendships at school, found lovers and mates, and lived next door to as neighbours. This report is a mixed bag. 
neither wholly good nor bad, but something in between. Another perspective from amongst our communities of colour that allows us to reflect on where opinion may be at this time of heightened awareness of race following the death of George Floyd and the emergence of BLM. And that has to be a good thing. Thank you, Charles. Um, racism is um, this whole issue, of course, um, one has to accept is a, a very emotive one. But I first want to begin by asking whether um, the panel, our panel or our special guest, I would rather refer to you all as, um, have any uh, questions for Charles? And I'd uh, ask if you would keep it rather brief because, you know, we're on a very short time span. So if I may start with uh, Umar, may? Yeah, I think um, you, get, you gave a very good summary there, Charles. And I think, you know, it does kind of bring into context how everything has, has kind of evolved. And I think my view of the, the Sewell report is that it does colour, and I use that term lightly, um, where things are at really at, at the moment. And I think, um, yes, Progressively, I think the UK, you know, compared to a lot of other countries around the world, is definitely a lot more progressive when it comes to the integration of people of colour in the UK uh, within the systems. And I think it's a lot more um, forward thinking and more aspirational for people of colour. But I do still think there is a long, long way to go. And I think things have changed dramatically, obviously, over the years. And I think, you know, for yourself, as you stated, you know, you're 71 years old. So you would have seen a lot that has changed in, in that period of time of being alive, you know, over 71 years. You know, for me being 36, I, I myself have seen some bits of change from things that have happened. You know, I, re, I was old enough to remember when <coughs> Stephen Lawrence was murdered. I was old enough to remember the McPherson report that came out um, not long after that. Um, and there's still a long way to go, in my view. I think, you know, we've had so many reviews and so many recommendations that have come out uh, over the last 20 odd years, but not all the, the recommendations have been implemented. So I do feel like, well, what is the purpose of having yet another review when we've had several in the past, you know, the McPherson report, uh, the Lamy review, which took place only a couple of years ago, and all of their recommendations haven't yet been implemented. So I do think uh, whilst it is a more progressive society, comparatively speaking, uh, compared to the other places around the world, I do think there is a long way to go uh, for the UK before it can claim that you know racism doesn't exist in, in, in any way, shape or form. Charles, do you have any a quick response to that? Um, well, yeah, I'd, I'd say that um, the, the point about the SEAL report is that it brings a separate or a, a, a further dimension to the debate. That what we've had in the past is an is a, basically an agreement that race is not only the scenario, but it's also the solution to the problems. And I think what the report does, it highlights instances based on the statistics gathered by the ONS and uh, says, well, maybe the answer to the reason why um, people of colour um, are not doing so well in, in the housing market, for example, is because Britain actually has a, a deficit, a massive deficit of housing, which is massively overpriced. And that also affects the white community. So maybe there's something other than race at the bottom of some of these issues. And I think that's a view worth hearing. 
Emotionally, however, I find myself still attracted to the arguments of the detractors. But intellectually, I find myself being pulled towards looking at these other issues that uh, Sewell raises. Okay, Charles, thank you very much. <coughs> That's a good place to stop. Um, David, is there a question that you'd like to put through to um I think it's interesting. You, you, give, you give a good account, Charles. But some of the stuff, and you know, I, admittedly, I haven't read all 258 pages, but I've read some of the summary and some of the coverage around it and some of the people that have been unpicking it. And what it seems is that it, it's a bit disingenuous because the commission members did not actually all come to an agreement. They were shown sections. Some of the um, academic work that was attributed to it is not quite being quoted or even asked permission to use or telling them that they were going to use it. So I think, you know, and a lot of the media coverage has been headlines rather than delving into the detail to which you did. So I think like that kind of context needs to play as well. And what, one of the interesting things that it makes me think about is a lot of the some of this stuff is very hard to demonstrate with hard data because we either don't collect it or, you know, it's been given different um, different weight. But when you hear some of the narrative stories, like the BBC did that small act story, uh, um, bunch of stories. And one of the most interesting ones I came across was the trial of the Mangrove Nine in the 1970s. And what that was the first time the judiciary recognised that institutional racism existed as such. And it, it just seems that even in 2021, we still have not fully addressed issues of race. And I feel like there is a falter on one side that doesn't want to admit that racism is beyond being called, for instance, uh, calling a black person the N-word. Like that is their definition and, and kind of starting point and only kind of hovers around there rather than seeing uh what's the word we use not implicit good god i've lost the uh, uh covert racism that 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 bubbles underneath you know and you you mentioned in your piece charlie about racism spiking at different points after 9 11 loads of people of sikh origin were attacked simply because they wore a turban so it just shows i think that sometimes our conversations around race need to be wider and the the case in point goes to this report that rather than digest all 258 pages and kind of unpick there, we're doing it with headlines and um, maybe some of the ephemera around it, or rightly so, some of the, the bigger issues. Charles, I'll let you provide a very quick um, response. And um, Well, I think what I'd say, going back to uh, a point that Umar made, um, uh, as well as acknowledging what David has just said, that the reason why this report happened after all those other reports is because the death of George Floyd and the emergence of BLM changed the situation. And we needed to know where we are now. That doesn't invalidate the other reports and it doesn't explain why a lot of the recommendations of those previous reports haven't been acted on. But I think we did need um, a stop and reflect point. And I think Sewell has provided that. Okay, thank you, Charles. Delhi, I finally come to our, our youngest member on the, on the panel and uh, ask what, what do young people think about the, um, the particularly the, 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 the um, narrative that Charlie's just described? I think it was a good summary. I think pockets of the report you can challenge and agree with. I find it interesting how the commission chose to 
focus on certain things and kind of brush over others. In terms of their conclusion, I don't think it's what young people are looking for. Towards the end of the report, uh, the commission kind of credited young people for uh, starting a conversation and getting them to acknowledge that things need to be looked into. But the conclusions that they came to, I don't think that's what young people are looking for. So I think uh, those that took part in uh, BLM protests may have been disappointed with the results. Uh, I think it's the commission used hours. numbers numbers to kind of back up their points. But if you're on the ground and it's happening to you, it's very difficult to accept those figures. Um, so I think it addressed a large range of issues and there's a lot to digest. Um, but I think that's what we're here to do today. Charles, would you like to respond very briefly to that? Uh, well, you know, I'm 71, as, as I said earlier, and as a consequence, that means um, my, my views go back to a much earlier time, perhaps. Um, however, what the phrase I use here is that my generation and the generation of your parents, um, we pick the low-hanging fruit on the topic of racism. And the, the things we're trying to reach for now are the more difficult, um, more obscure issues that remain. And they're harder to get your hands on because it's quite easy to see that passing a major piece of legislation, like, for example, the 1965 Race Relations Act, that was a relatively simple thing to do once you had um, a parliamentary majority to do that. And that was following directly on the race riots of the late 50s and early 60s. So that was quite an easy thing to achieve. And then some of the other things down the line were relatively easy to achieve. But attitudes are very difficult to change. And institutions are very difficult to turn around. If you imagine them like a big oil tanker that takes 10 miles to turn around, institutions are a bit like that. So that's why I say that while Sewell is probably right in many of his attitudes, I think he underplays the, the effects of institutional racism. Yes, it's interesting the point you made about the low-hanging fruit, because I think that we may come back to that a little later. Um, but I wanted to start with some kind of agreement, because we're all talking about and it's racism. And I want to just to go around very, very quickly with all of you, just a single sentence to describe what your understanding, and it's about you, your understanding of racism is. Please keep this very brief and just a single sentence. Um, I'll start with um, David, if you would, please. God, pick on me. <laughs> um, <laughs> using race as a point of judgment. Yeah, I'll leave it that loose. Using race as a point of judgment. Umar? Um, I would say, to me, what racism is, is um, it's a way of preventing uh, people of colour from not being able to progress um, in the way that they should um, be able to. And, yeah, just and it to be in quite a systematic way as well. And uh, finally, um, Delhi, your your view of racism. Um, I think it's just 
prejudice primarily primarily based off of a person's race. I'll keep it there. I'll leave it there. Lovely. And Charles, do you have any you'd like to um, add to that? I think it's attitudes and behaviours that are applied by one group to another group, um, which are prejudicial and which come from a false notion of racial superiority or community superiority, to which I would add having the power to make those effects stick. It's interesting that um, I think, uh, broadly speaking, you're, you're, you're all right. There's, there is no one, I've discovered, no single definition, definitive definition of racism. <laughs> But I found one quite interesting de definition, which I'm, I, which comes from the um, the uh, uh, Crown Prosecution Service, and I'm just wondering whether it's something you feel would probably fit into much of your narrative so far, which is talks about any incident or crime which is preceded by the victim of any other person to be motivated by hostility or prejudice based on a person's religion or race. Um, fundamentally, that's it. And um, it's religion plays, um, in terms of the Crown prosecution, plays an important role in um, determining, determining people's hostility um, and, uh, and, and uh, as well as race. And uh, I don't know whether anyone has a comment they'd like to make uh, on that. Yeah, I would just simply say that's tied up with the 2010 Equality Act. Of course it is. Because indeed. they made a specific link between race and religion, yeah. which some people question. Okay, Dan. So I think, I think you have to look at that in terms of the definitions the CPS is using to affect prosecutions rather than a, a more um, holistic definition of race. I I think that it for for legal terms I think that's the definition that mo most people are going to have to adjust to because if you want to prosecute it's what you need to um, convince the courts of but however I'm going Des, to can I just Des, can I just throw in a human thing that, yes you know in when I think about human beings you know when we start off when we're small when we're learning about the world. We are inquisitive. We want to discover things. We want to find out yeah. what's behind that door, what's going on there. Why does that do that? And it makes me think that, you know, where did at what point do we lose that that creative discovery of trying to find out something? And I mean it in terms of like culture, because actually, you know, from the if you're living in your racist ignorance, it means you don't want to discover stuff. You're not willing to challenge yourself. You're not willing to look outside of your own box. And I just find that that kind of very human thing, because you're not born racist. You don't arrive out of the womb and this is already programmed in your mind. These are like social constructs. So I just I don't know, just off the back of what you guys were saying, it was just making me think. Uh, yeah, there's a there's a human element to which at some stage this social construct is poured in. I will I will come I will revisit that in a few minutes, Dave. Um, but I want to move on to another question um, because I'm very conscious of time. Um, the question I want to put to all of you, and again I'm going to restrict you to a couple of minutes each, is does the British education or rather, does British education perpetuate racism? 
and we'll start with um, Uma. Interesting question. Um, I think it depends. It's a difficult one. I mean, I've seen documentaries that have shown. Um, I remember seeing a documentary a few years ago that shows that um, I think black boys, especially from the Caribbean, were more likely to be discriminated against. And that process began as young as nursery age. So, you know, they come into the, edu the establishment and they're taken as because they're quite boisterous, uh, they're quite loud. Therefore, it means that there is a problem. And then, you know, at that point, it kind of becomes an issue because then they start to get institutionalized by the institutions that are meant to be helping them. And then it just becomes a, a very dangerous um, cycle for them. So you've already been labeled something and then that, that label will carry through to primary school, to secondary school, likely to a pupil referral unit. And then quite possibly, you know, you'll end up in prison before you're 18 type of thing. So I think in some regards it can be, but again, I think it, it's, it's a difficult one because I speak as a black African who, you know, I come from, I've got a Nigerian background. So therefore education was kind of looked at in a particular way in my household, you know, my dad being a former teacher himself. So he kind of never took the notion of there is any kind of racism within the school structure. It's very much, you know, if you're misbehaving, it's because you are the one that's misbehaving and you're not being, you're, you're not listening to what the teacher has to say, as opposed to there being any kind of other things. I have, a, I suppose, you know, I grew up in the schools that I went to were very diverse. So it's quite difficult to say whether or not I feel that there is kind of racism in, in that sphere. Um, I, I kind of felt like growing up, I mean, I had a Nigerian form tutor when I was in secondary school. Um, you know, my teachers were very diverse in primary school. I never really got the sense that I wasn't pushed enough. Probably the only person I would arguably say I had an issue with was my physics teacher who pretty much said I would not amount to anything. And, you know, 20 years later, here I am. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> but you know, I think, you know, he was probably in that kind of sphere himself. So it's, it's, it's a difficult one. And I think it, it boils down to how much institutions understand the pupils that they serve and how much they understand the communities that they are representing and whether or not we are getting teachers in who actually understand the level of diversity. <clears throat> so, you know, if you're, if you're going to put a teacher in from Yorkshire who has never had experience of diversity whatsoever and you're expecting them to kind of integrate and be able to understand the nuances of you know what's loud versus what's kind of a personality thing then yeah of course there's going to be issues like that that will that will be perpetuated but I think if you've got people that have grown up and understand the area understand it then I think teachers can approach it in a different way so yeah it's, it's, it's a tough one <laughs> Tell me, how about you how, how, how do you feel on this issue with your education do you feel that the the British, um, the British education system has um, perpetuated racism. Uh, I agree with Uma in terms of it. It depends on how how you look at things, what your individual experience um, was of school um, and your teachers. I think your treatment throughout school, uh, you could have a negative experience, and that follows you throughout your entire school career. Or you could have a really good experience and you can succeed. I think 
in a lot of ways it is up to the individual and you know there are certain behaviors that uh, teachers won't understand they don't know your background or your culture um they kind of come into school and kind of push onto you how they think uh, things should go and that's not always uh, the best way to deal with people uh, I think it was interesting how uh, Umar referenced his um, cultural background um, and uh, specifically the difference between maybe uh, Black Caribbean boys and Black African boys, which is a point that the commission also tried to make. I think for me, um, being um, African and, and Caribbean, uh, I would say there was equal emphasis on education from both sides um, and being around um, kind of Caribbean black boys as well at school all of the time. A lot of my friends are Caribbean as well. Uh, I think they tried to do their best as well. And the emphasis for me was always on study hard and um, you'll be successful eventually. Uh, so I, I think that, I think getting your uh, grades or whatever is on paper and it can't be taken away from you and trying to blame the teacher or look elsewhere um, is an excuse. Um, mm. But if you if you if you know you've been treated differently and then you you're getting constantly picked on and you get kicked out of school for example then the way you look at the education system uh, was going to be different i'm going to stop you at this stage because i want to introduce a couple of pieces of um, video and dave if you'd like to cue this in up for me perhaps we start looking at dr kehendi um andrew's um comment and now look to Dr. Andrews to close the case for the proposition. All right, so thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for coming. I wasn't going to start here, but I've heard a lot of things in my time. And believe me, Bob Marley will be on this side of the aisle. All right, I just want to say that 100%, and I explain why. All right, first thing first in terms of this motion is racism. Racism is not about individual prejudice. Racism is not about the individual white teacher who says bad things. I've been called a nigger probably three times by white people. Every single time I left. Why? There was no power. It was meaningless to me, right? Let's take a key case, um, Stephen Lawrence, right? Stephen Lawrence was killed by racists, but that wasn't what made it racism. The act itself was prejudice. What made it racism was how the police responded. Because he was black, they didn't do their job. And 20 years later, we have to still fight for justice. Racism is about power. It is about structures. And that is how we have to analyze it. Not in terms of individual prejudice and these ideas, not in terms of looking, it's in terms of numbers, in terms of inequalities, in terms of unemployment, it's in terms of university inequalities, which are actually worse than school inequalities, right? And when we look at this, and we look at the society as a whole, I'm reminded of what Malcolm X said, uh, not when he came here, actually, it was a year after he came here. He said that the West, America, Britain, can no more provide freedom, justice, and equality than a chicken can lay a duck egg. And that's important. Racism is at the DNA, is at the heart of this country. We say Britain is, of course Britain is racist. That's the most obvious thing you could ever say. Britain is not only racist, it is built on racism and perpetuates racism on a daily basis, right? The three pillars of this country are genocide, slavery, and colonialism. That's a story you won't hear, but it is the truth. 
All of the wealth, this wonderfully esteemed place we are in today, is built on genocide, slavery, and colonialism. It is maintained on colonialism. It is maintained on racism. And as has already been said today by the other side, I think it was, the school system, what's the role of the school system? Is to perpetuate the society. So once you show indisputably that Britain is based on racism, then the school system can only perpetuate racism because this is the purpose of the school system. That was uh, Dr. Andrew Stave. I'd like you, if you can move on to the next bit for me, which is the comment of Dr. The, uh, Dr. Sewell, because I think it'd be a useful point for us. Letters from my grand, grandmother and grandfather, and the handwriting was immaculate. You know, and these were, I mean, we would say technically peasant people in, in rural Jamaica. And it, the grammar, the handwriting, the uh, punctuation was spectacular. 100, 10 out of 10 for an English. And uh, as I said, as an English teacher. And I remember in my comprehensive, we were all struggling to construct sentences in handwriting was all over the place. So here was a kind of strange situation. Here was I in the so-called mother country um, with all the best teachers, allegedly in the 1970s, but yet my grandparents under a so-called, and, that, and that, that wasn't the best school in Jamaica by any, by any means, they were getting a particular type of education. And it's that particular type of education that I want to talk about today. And I think that Oxford University recognizes that, and those of you who are here in terms of the population group would recognize that. I think it's about ritual, I think it's about resilience, I think it's about rules and rigor. And what's interesting, my evidence for that comes from the actual anti-colonial generals and, 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 and men and women who were fighting the anti-colonial barrier. Let me give you one example. C.L.R. James, a Marxist, goes to Queen's uh, um, College in Trinidad. And he can't help himself but almost kind of it, it, it seduced, sucked into that what we would recognize as an English public school education. That, I name another one, Nelson Mandela, Chinua Chebi, Wally Inca, Nkrumah, Rex Nettleford in, in Jamaica. And, I, um, and if we go to the Asian side, Salman Rushdie, Gandhi, all brought up, all loving that kind of education. Because that basically is what made them, and that's really what... And why are they loving it? Read the biographies. There's a tension. There's a tension, yes, they're fighting the anti-colonial war, they're going out and fighting, but their education is built on this British way of working. And it's not about necessarily always about training civil servants. What is at the end of it is this. It's these four things. The ritual in that education, the um, resilience you get, the rules, the rigor and also Greek, Latin, and the Bible thrown in as well. That's actually essentially a, a private school education. Essentially, that's the essence of it. And in a way, what it was designed for doing, it was designed to construct leaders. It was designed to construct leaders, but it was more than that. It was also based on a utopian perception of the world. 
education comes in and it's about how we change the world how we so you look to the greeks you look to you look to the greeks you look to latin and that underpins that education system right uh, thank you thank you very much david um just to recap on dr kehendi andrews comments he spoke about three pillars um, in the educational system in Britain, which is genocide, slavery, and uh, and um, and colonialism, and he sees that as imprinted in the British DNA. And of course, you had a complete opposite view expressed by Dr. Sewell, and he talks in terms of the same British institution, uh, educational institution as providing resilience, rules, and rigor. And he talked about in terms of it being designed to, um, to construct leaders. What are your views, Delhi, on this, may I ask? Um, so for those three pillars, I think uh, Dr. Andrews was talking about um, kind of Britain being based on those three pillars and it's reflected in the education system. But for me, what's interesting is uh, none of those three pillars are ever mentioned within the education system. I mean, for me, uh, I had to take kind of history all the way to degree level to even get a taste of any of those three. So you don't get an idea of what the country is based on at all, especially if you're looking at these three pillars. I mean, people might suggest that, um, you know, genocide, for example, is inappropriate for you know, younger ages. Um, but in terms of teaching uh, British history, uh, the education system chooses to leave certain things out. I think it's quite easy for you to teach about colonialism, but that's a part of British history that the country has chosen to ignore. It's all very well uh, kind of championing the Commonwealth and the British Empire. But when you talk about uh, colonialism and kind of taken over the rest of the world, uh, that part of history is kind of tucked away. David, how about you? What's your view on this? I, well, I completely agree with a lot of what Delhi's saying and um, Dr. Andrews points some stuff out, but I feel like on one side of it, it's not the whole, and I don't mean this to like demote racism, like below any of things around uh, other inequalities, but it's the whole mixture of society, the capitalistic structure. It is the very few that win and seek out. So racism is one factor. I don't think it's the only thing that's at play. So I just that would be what I'd kind of reply back to Dr. Anthony. But uh, listening to Tony Sewell, I feel like he's a very confused man. Like he, he actually, if you follow his logic and argument, you say that this is what, you know, okay, teaching rigor and so on is a is a school education worth having yeah he's kind of mixing thoughts in my mind when I listen to it because actually that's what the elite have but they're told something else which are, you are tomorrow's leaders so when you are at that Etonian school or, or any of the other ones this is where you tend to find where people come from Oxford and Cambridge so on and so on because we are 
grooming it through in that way you you know when is the last time somebody who went to you know Greenwich uh, University was ever a member of the cabinet or an editor of the newspaper or so on and so on so I think there's lots of other factors at play but it, it you know in terms of our education system like Delhi was saying I, I think it's the slant that history chooses to have you know history is written by the victors so when we learn about the British Empire yeah, we went and did trade is often what you probably learn about. Um, you don't necessarily unpick it. And I think there's also there's some whether it's guilt, whether it's not wanting to acknowledge stuff or whether it's not viewing it in that way. And I think there are a lot of people that would still ascribe to the notion of, you know, the British Empire went to enlighten the natives that were not as bright and intelligent as them somehow. I think there are people that still ascribe to that today. I want to, Charles, I want to ask you a question here, and I, I think I want to specifically focus on the, the point that David made, is whether you, as a historian, and I probably, I'd like you to give it a little bit of thought to, Delhi, whether it's, it's, it's fair to say that history is written by the victors. It is sometimes written by the victors, but then sometimes later, those, who, are the, who is judged to be the victors changes. And other histories get written. So, for example, the argument about why Hitler started the Second World War. Historians used to have a settled view on it. They don't anymore. And, of course, since then, German historians have felt confident enough to write about that era in their history. So, no, it isn't always only written by the victors. And it isn't only the victors' memory, which eventually becomes the settled view. Okay, I'm going to leave it there because I want to go on to the next question. I'm can very I just, con conscious of time. Can I just very quickly say something about the education system? Just very since quickly. Since those two clips. I will, I will be returning to the education oh, right. system. So hold that, hold that in mind. The next question I wanted to ask was, um, in, in whose interest, and I want to just focus this at Umar, in whose interest is it to keep the narrative on race? And does it serve the needs of people of colour or are there more important um, matters or issues? Uma, your view please. I think it serves those who are in those institutions already and, and you know I think one of the big issues that we have especially with people of colour is that lack of kind of generational um, wealth and kind of passing down of things that, that goes on, especially, I think, within the white middle class and upper class societies. And I think, you know, in institutions, it does kind of help to play within a certain narrative to say, well, you know, we can keep people at a particular juncture because then it means that they won't necessarily progress and they won't kind of start to infiltrate in other structures that we have going on, which could lead to, to change and people feeling possibly threatened by that level of change. Whereas I kind of take the view that actually having people of color in a lot of these institutions, especially at higher levels, adds a different perspective and it brings a different narrative and a different focus to the conversation. And I think that's more reflective of the society that we are now living in. And I think we can't have a situation where we're saying, okay, on the one hand, look at us, we're this multinational country, we love people of color, look at all the great things that you bring, you know, your food, your cultures, et cetera, et cetera. But when it comes to the actual decision-making element of things, it's like, well, you're good enough for, for all of that, but actually you're not at that level to be making those types of decisions. And I think that's where that, 
that conversation needs to change. And I think what we're seeing as well, um, and I think I mentioned this to you a few days ago, Des, when we had a chat, but I think what we're seeing is the emergence of a black middle class. And I think there is this emergence, and I think Charles mentioned this at the beginning, of a black middle class who are super aspirational, and I think I'm moving away from the old narratives that have been set uh, before. And I think what we find is, for example, like my parents, <coughs> and people that come through from like the Windrush generation, for example, the narrative was to get over here, to give their children an opportunity to be able to succeed in a much better place, perhaps, than they would if they were to stay in places like Nigeria or in the Caribbean, where the education system wasn't necessarily as sound as what it is over here. Now you're finding that people are born here, you know, first generation um, people of color that are being born here and are taking that narrative and saying, well, actually, these are the opportunities that I have available to me. I'm going to make the system work for me in a way that's more beneficial for me. So that's why we have a massive explosion of um, people of color who are entrepreneurs. That's why we have more uh, black owned businesses that are out there. Because I think people now are just saying, well, we're not going to necessarily go down the traditional routes that we've been forced to go down in the past. We're actually creating a new path for ourselves. And because of that, we now have this burgeoning um, black middle class society that's forming. And I think as well, what you're also seeing is within that black middle class, you're now kind of seeing a bit of a maybe of a bending towards more conservative type ideals um, and kind of moving away somewhat from socialist ideals as well. Because I think that that's kind of especially I know like from a Nigerian perspective, there is that hustler mentality. And I see this because, you know, my brother-in-law that wasn't born here, he came over here, did his university education and is absolutely flourishing because he's got that kind of hustler mentality. And I'm, and I think we're starting to see that more and more in the younger generation because they're seeing, well, I've been born here, I'm educated here, I've got access to these opportunities. I don't have to necessarily go down traditional routes. This is what I can do. I can flourish. And that's what I'm going to do. Omar, I'm going to stop you there, and I'm going to apologise for everybody else perhaps not being able to comment in much the same way on this on this particular um, question. But time is actually pushing. I want to also, um, but what I want to draw some reference to is David made a very important issue a moment ago when he said, and David, correct me if I'm not correct on this, when you spoke about race not being the only issue. I thought that was a very valuable comment um, because there, there is a view that um, racism is, if you like, the, um, is the macro problem um, for people of colour in Britain. Um, whether you agree with uh, Tony Sewell, whether you agree with Tony Sewell or not, um, his report has got, however, everybody um, talking. And uh, for me, the issue, it, then it follows. If racism, one can see as perhaps the macro problem, um, what are the micro problems contained in this, uh, in, 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 in the system? Um, I, I give an example. Perhaps education is a component part to the way in which um, people of colour are perceived by white people in Britain. I give you an example of that for me personally. When I was at, uh, I was very fortunate to go to grammar school. And when I was at school, I walked into the school the first day I remember so, so vividly. 
I was uh, the only black kid in the school. And as I walked in, I had a young white lad, my peer, say to me, oh, here comes a nigger with bricks in his head. And it really made me feel as if I had no right to be there. It didn't take me long to establish my own credentials. Um, but when I reflect on all of those things, I think there, there are certain issues that play a very, very important role in the way in which people are perceived in spite of race. I use, for example, education as an example. There are also about issues around crime and policing, and I think perhaps, Umar, you, you, you may be able to comment on this. There's the law and the courts. There's religion. Um, there are issues around family. For example, being in, it's a quite a common thing for black um, people to, for, for particularly Caribbeans, to be in a more dysfunctional, grow up in a more dysfunctional family settings than it is, for example, for the Asian community or the African community. And I think realistically, we have to man up to that. We have to, um, you know, concede that that, that is um, one. It's because it's not just happening in Britain. It also happens in the Caribbean. And as a person born in the Caribbean, I think I have, you know, every right to be able to say that. You also need to think about things like housing, um, and the the I'd also refer to geography, where people come from, having an impact on the kind of person that they are. So these are all the other issues, I think, to consider. And I think one of the other things to consider as well, and particularly, and Umar, you may be able to reflect on this yourself, and also David, in terms of the, um, I wouldn't call it political education, but pro probably political leadership. Um, for example, in Britain, which is quite unusual for even any of the European countries, you've got a Chancellor of Exchequer who's black. You know, you've got polit political leadership in terms of a Home Secretary and a Shadow Home Secretary who are also black. And you've got a number of political um, MPs as well who provide useful, um, useful um, symbols of perhaps hope for black youngsters. Why is it that black youngsters always think that they can only succeed in sports? They could be great chemists, they could be great historians, they could be great, a whole range of things they could do. So, um, Charles, you said you had something that you wanted to, I was to, just, to comment on, and yeah. I'll give you an opportunity I was now. just going to quick, very quickly say, the education system in Britain has changed massively since the 1944 Education Act, which set up the modern system. And in some ways, it's gone backwards, is my experience. The curriculum is now much narrower than it was when I was at school. So some of the things that um, Delhi was saying about the history curriculum, which I totally agree with, it's, it's a crap curriculum now. It's basically Tudors and Second World War. That wasn't the case when I was at school. We, we started with the with the Greeks and the Romans, we moved through the um, Anglo-Saxons, the Vikings, the Normans, through the Plantagenets, through the Tudors, through the Stuarts, through the unification of Scotland and England, and on into the Agrarian Revolution, the Industrial Revolution, um, the end of slavery, the, um, the imposition of um, 
the Royal Navy on the slave trade in 1807, preventing the international slave trade from continuing, and so on, through and ended with the Second World War. That was the history curriculum from primary school through to your O-level. If you went on to A-levels in history, it was a different, it was a much more complex curriculum. Today, that history curriculum has been stripped bare. Secondly, with regard to the Caribbean education system, it's actually very good. And it's a very traditional English system going back maybe 40, 50 years, the, the shape of it. And before that, it was also modeled on the English education system. And that is why a lot of Caribbean parents have been sending their children back to the Caribbean for education. It's more rigorous and it's more disciplined. And that is a, that's a criticism of where we're at now. That doesn't mean, however, that there aren't schools that are achieving. And one of the reasons behind setting up the academy program was to offer an alternative to the one-size-fits-all state-run comprehensive system. I'm going to put a question to all of you and just a very brief answer, if you may. Has racism got worse? No. No. Has, has it got worse? I think... I feel like in the last few years, it's become, it feels like it's got worse. And I think part of the reason for that is, I think it's social media. So I think beforehand, you know, to experience racism, somebody would have to come up to you and openly make a racist comment towards you. And that that's how you know, you know, racism was about. But I think you do get the sense that it is a bit more prevalent. And I think probably because of social media makes it, 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 I think it, it it blows it up a bit more. Um, so you would, would you say that it's got worse? Um, I would say, yeah, I think it's got marginally worse. I don't feel like we've necessarily, I think we have progressed somewhat, but I feel like in the last few years, we've probably regressed a little bit. And I think you can point that down to potentially, you know, looking at Brexit uh, as, a, as a kind of a, as a focal point, because I think it's kind of allowed people to suddenly espout views that were probably long held and not necessarily spoken about quite openly before. Um, and now it's just kind of given people the brass neck to be able to do that without feeling that there's any re repercussions to that. David, they, they were, sorry, they were the spikes I was referring to, Umar. When I said there were spikes, I agree yeah. with what you've just said about, say, the Brexit, for example. There are spikes, yeah. but they come and go. But the long-term trend has massively improved over it was at the time the Notting Hill race riots, for example, or yeah. um, the Scarman report. Mm -hmm. Okay, David, how about you? <laughs> so many. Has it got worse? Um, I don't know what I would use as my barometer and yardstick, but obviously, with like what Umar is saying about social media, I think it's a lot easier to expose and show. And George Floyd is the absolute case in point, because had that video clip not existed, would we know his name sitting having our conversation right now? And people cannot deny it that, you know, like it's in your face, like you cannot, you don't have to read a 258 page report is a nine minute clip. There you are. How much more clearer do you need it? So the fact that we're able to see these things more immediate and direct can could can and possibly does make it feel like the issues are more prevalent, or maybe it was always there and now it's just more visible. Or maybe right, hang, on, hang, on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on a second. Um, how about how about you, Delhi? Yes, I can hear you now. Yeah. Um, I think I don't think it's got worse. I think it's just 
like different. So the kind of overt racism you might not see as much, um, but the covert kinds you do. I think the social media point is very important. It does seem like it's more in your face and it uh, kind of attests to a point that I made previously in terms of what you view on social media almost kind of reflects your experiences. So I could go on social media on any given day and, you know, pretty much all the time see something that's um, maybe racist or doesn't seem right. I can see a video of someone getting unfairly treated. I can see um, people in the comment section being racist. So it does put it a lot more in your face and you can you can go to pretty much any social media platform and view this. So I think for me, it's over the long term, like what Charlie was saying, I think it, we have progressed, but um, there are pockets where it has gotten worse and it is in your face as well. Charlie, what were you going to say? Um, well, first of all, in relation to David, I think we should be careful about confusing the American situation with the British situation because it's an entirely different situation. With, re with regard to um, what Delhi has just been saying about um, the increase in racism in, if you're on social media, yeah, definitely. It's a very toxic environment, social media. But that doesn't necessarily represent what's going on in the country. It represents the people that are using social media. And if, for example, you're on something like Facebook, which I know a lot of young people aren't, but a lot of older people are, Right, you go onto Facebook and it's actually the same 25, 30 people constantly. And then you get the pressure groups from, from left and right constantly bombarding you with their propaganda. And it's quite hard to find your way through that and to maintain a reasonable perspective. Okay, right. I just want to, I've got a, my comment on it. It's just that I think to the question about whether racism's got worse. I would say it's very simple. It's just got filmed. That's the difference between racism in my day and racism today. And that plays a major role in how the whole issue, as we've seen with the American incidents that Dave referenced, is being dealt with. And you probably will see it more visibly when it occurs on that regular level in Britain. Um, but yes, and I take your point, Charles, yes, the American situation and the British situation is very different. And one key difference between the American situation and the British situation also involves the American perception of racism and also the American lived experience. Britain never had plantations. That's an important issue. America does. Didn't have plantations here. Not here, not the in Britain. The were Britain, the British colonies. Britain, Britain did not um, air its dirty laundry <laughs> in its own country. It aired its dirty laundry outside of the British Isles, whereas America did air its own dirty laundry in America. And of course, the relationship between the American people of color and the country physically is very different to that in Britain. And I think that's an important issue. I do want to conclude, and this is the last point I want to move on to, which is I did want to play actually, David, if you may play for me, is the, um, is the, the, the um, interview with um, Patrick um, Vernon from um, the Runnymede Trust, because he, he sees the world in a very, very different way. And I think 
it's fair to do him justice that we do raise some of the issues that he he feels is important. So if you've got a clip for me, Dave. Uh, thanks for, uh, for inviting me, Lehman. It's really I'm great for everyone online tonight. Um, I've had so many messages uh, in the last few hours of anger, despair, frustration. And, you know, we have to take the report with a pinch of salt. I don't think we should take it too seriously. I I was interviewed on TV, um, Victoria Derby's show. I was wearing a Star Trek top. I'm a Trekkie. I'm not, um, this is like Black Panther, but no. And I was, someone sent a message privately saying, why are you wearing that, that Star Trek top? This is a serious matter. It's not because the report is in a parallel universe. That's how I see it. It's in, in a stratosphere on another time continuum. <laughs> And the, that report could have been drafted. With, reminds the reports that were drafted in Britain in the 1960s and 70s when we were classed as immigrant children and the whole stuff around being classed as educational subnormal. And the message was, if we work hard enough, get good grades, we'll be all right. 40 years on, if we work hard enough, we get good grades, we'll be okay. It's, it's a broken record. And the, we know full well that when Tony was commissioned, approach to chair this report. We knew that, I've known Tony for many years, and I've had a lot of battles with Tony, I'm sure we all have, but um, I know Tony on a regular basis, because uh, every year, for the last, uh, I've been involved with the Battle of Ideas for the last five, six years, and they have debates on all kinds of topics to do with Britain, society, and I've always been on a panel with Tony uh, and a whole range of people that's been involved in this report. Uh, so I knew where the parts are coming from. They don't believe in structural racism. So obviously when you have someone like Tony who is chairing this report, we knew that was going to happen anyway. The question was how, he, how he's going to style the report. And the report is styled in a way that we are victims, all of us, all people of colour are victims of our misfortune. And that's the first thing. And secondly, if you're stopped to search, it's your fault. If you've got mental health problems, it's your fault. If it's a maternal death, it's your fault. And actually, it's all our fault. And this is the kind of rhetoric that was used during the height of to justify slavery and enslavement and colonization. And now we've got people, black and brown people, who are telling us what our ancestors had to deal with 400 years ago to justify slavery. Now they're telling us that we should be happy that we're in this country and actually we're going to export this model to Denmark, Norway, maybe America. So the report itself, I don't, I don't think we should spend too much time getting angry at, um, regarding the report. I think that's what Simon said before we got online. We should look at the report, have a drink it, burn it, and, and then move on. And then we fight and we call out people. Um, some of the people that's been involved in this report, I'm not surprised by. Um, some of the people who have been involved in this report, I'm very disappointed by, who have signed their name to this. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not trying, it's just the equivalent of a Holocaust denier being asked to develop a strategy on anti-Semitism. Half those people on there have don't understand the history of Britain or purport to understand the history of Britain. They don't understand the impact implications of enslavement. They don't understand modern-day racism, and actually, they don't really care about anything else apart from themselves. And you know, the report is uh, is. Um, I don't think we should kill ourselves. We should just forget the report and do the real work. And as as in the trilogy of the last Star Wars movie, um, the rise lose like the rise of Luke Skywalker, um, the uh, the main black actor in Star Wars, Billy D. Williams said in a la in the last battle scene of the Empire, 
there's more of us than them. There is more of us than them. So let's don't 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 be despondent, everyone. We can fight this. And and the final thing I have to say, Halima, as you know, with most government reports, when it comes to people of colour, they never get implemented anyway. I'll give it six months and I'll move on to another project. Do you think we should burn the report? Um, let me start off with um, Uma. Very quick, very briefly. Should we burn the report? I think it does, uh, not in its entirety, I think it does raise some very valid recommendations. For example, ditching the term BAME, which I've always had a huge disdain for, uh, and I think that does need to be replaced. Um, but I think in terms of, yeah, I think a lot of it can be ditched, and I think a lot of it is a replication of stuff that's come from the past. And I think for me, what's most important is let's look at all of the reports that have been produced over the last 20 odd years and let's put something together whereby we are implementing these recommendations and doing it in a way which involves people of colour in that conversation to be able to make a difference. How about you, Dave? Should we burn it? Yeah, why not? I mean, this is a, you know, a government report, but uh, no, no, I'm, in seriousness, uh, I kind of agree what Umar's saying. Yeah, there's the odd bits, and like Charlie said way at the beginning, there's some bits in there, but the, the conversation's not whole. You need to acknowledge you've got a problem, and there is, you know, you mentioned earlier about the macro and micro thing. I think unconscious bias is something people don't take an opportunity to examine in themselves about why they do things, because we've been talking a lot about racism in the overt sense but when they do that you know annual survey of sending out the 1000 cvs with john smith as the name and they see the response they get and then they send it out with a non-english sounding uh, you know name of ethnic origin then it doesn't get the same response there is something going on there and if people don't acknowledge they've got a problem and we don't try and explore ourselves we're never going to get anywhere and i think there is a real hesitancy you know, uh, at, the, at the front of people's brains, they don't want to examine and possibly think that their behaviour is racist. Like I said way back, they want to see the simplistic view of racism rather than all the interwoven ideas that people have in their minds. Delhi. Yeah, last last one for me, because I really do have to go. Um, yeah. I think it, <laughs> throw it in the bin. Um, I think because it didn't really kind of conclude what people were looking for. Um, I think a lot of it, you could like the point, main points they were trying to make, I don't think anyone was trying to deny, but the real issue that people wanted them to address, they kind of pushed to the side. Uh, so I, I don't think it was um, as good as it could be. And I think we've had reports similar to this before and each time, um, I don't think we've actually got to uh, the root of the problem. So yeah in the bin for me. Charlie? Um, <clears throat> I'm not in favour of burning books, to put it bluntly. Um, I think that's a very dangerous concept. And we've seen what happened before in history when people felt they were so right about something, they could totally disqualify and demean different opinions. I think that's dangerous. And I think that's the main criticism of the critics of this report, that they immediately reacted with fury. And a word we haven't mentioned here, really, in this discussion, is ideology and the power of specific ideologies when they're in conflict. And what we're seeing from a lot of the critics of Sewell is um, from the far left, 
it's an ideological framework that they bring to it. And what they're not willing to do is to concede that there may be things outside of that ide ideological construct that need to be considered. And Sewell is, to me, is saying there are other issues here. Um, disadvantage is not always about discrimination. Correlation is not always causation. So what else is going on that is holding back people of color in this country other than always saying it's race? And I think that's the most important part of that. And if Sewell's done anything, what he's done is forced us to a discussion with each other about where we're at now. And I think that's a very important thing to do. The conclusion for me, I think that the um, racism is a catch-all phrase. Um, and uh, I think that there are within the people of color, what I'd call race hustlers. They've got books to sell and they've got money to earn. And um, one of the difficulty I found in listening to the um, to some uh, debates was that it made me feel that there was no place for any other views than the views being espoused, and I think that's dangerous, and it's almost Trumpian actually. And I think what probably is at the heart of much of this, and I don't think that Sewell's got it all right, but then I think it's a difficult thing to get all right. Mm. Um, and I think that education is probably at the heart of any progress that needs to be made. And I'm reminded of one of the commissioners made a comment, and I think that I thought that was a very valuable comment, was she said, I will not be silent or silenced. And it reminded me of um, the, there was a number of um, race, there was a number, there Umar was a number, yeah. Umar? Yes, uh, sorry, I've got, a, I've got a check. That's all right, yes, you did say, <laughs> right. sorry. Give, give, us, the, give us the goodbye then, we can edit it in, in that way. So, right, just say goodbye. Thanks for joining us, Umar. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure. Please, I'm Thank more than happy to come back on again in the future. This thank you time. very much indeed. And thank you for your contribution. No Take worries, care. guys. Take, Take care, care, Bill. Take Have care. a good day. Thanks. Have you lost Delhi already? Yeah, we've lost <laughs> Delhi. Delhi's had to go very quickly. So, yeah, I think that we can probably, in conclusion, I would just say that um, for the show, is in conclusion, I would say that Angela Davis who was an, an American race act, activist in the 60s, whom, whom I grew up with. Um, she said, I'm no longer accepting the things I cannot change. Therefore, I'm changing the things I cannot accept. And at that point, it would seem to be an, an appropriate conclusion. <laughs> Well, yes, thank you to our guests, Charles, Delhi, and Umar for joining us on this special Des and Dave. Uh, we'll be back in normal form next week. I say normal form. What is normal form for us, Des? There's no way that me and you are normal, that's for sure. But we'll be back on the US politics. It's been a busy week over there. Anyway, we'll get to all that next week, won't we? We will indeed. 
<laughs> so have so you I'm decided good. on this song, David, that we're going to yeah, yeah, spin yeah, out that on? Burkini, was it, not Burkini. Burkini, how do you say it Burkina, Burkina. Burkina, there we are, Burkina. Yeah. All right, it's so this what, is what, it's... yeah, so this is uh, playing us out this week is One Love by the wonderful Burkina. Let them up as older, dirty remarks. 